Well, here we are today celebrating the exciting beginning of new lives with these babies and also celebrating wonderful women who bring them into the world called moms. And uh, this is appropriate. You know, there's not a verse in the Bible that says you must have a Mother's Day, uh, but it does say every day you are to honor your father and mother. So we are on solid biblical ground as we honor the uh, mothers and uh, praise God for the children. The Bible actually emphasizes more consideration on the other end of life. Not the beginning of life, but at the conclusion of life. In fact, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 that says it this way, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the, and the living will lay it to heart. Or to say it another way, that as much fun as it might be to go to a wedding or to go to a baby shower, there is more to be learned practically about what life really is about by going to a funeral, looking at that dead body, and contemplating what it means and what it says about our own mortality, our own lives. And uh, this, we've been studying this book, Ecclesiastes, in, in, it's a little bitty enigmatic book in the Old Testament. It said very profound things about life and about what life is all about and the despairs of life and where hope can be found. Its writer, possibly Solomon, probably Solomon, takes his incredible intellectual prowess and he pursues meaning in life as if there is no God. Okay? As if there is no God. How can man derive some sense of purpose, happiness, contentment, peace with just the things that are in this world? So this is the rational man. This is the naturalist. This is the atheist. This is the evolutionary biologist who their whole perspective on life is only defined in terms of what is here. No transcendence, no God. Can we live this way? And what does it feel like to live this way? And so Solomon takes his incredible intellect, his incredible wealth, we're talking about legendary wealth, and he tries to find happiness apart from God. And he, he does it in, in very popular categories, things people even today pursue. He pursues wisdom and knowledge. He goes to the university, he gets all his degrees, and he looks in his heart and he says, I'm not happy. Sorry, college graduates. By the way, we have many college graduates. Yesterday was a big college graduation day. Congratulations. You're not happy, are you? That's just, now you're happy right now, but give it a week or two. <clears throat> then he begins to pursue it in partying. He parties hardy. He laughs. He jokes. He uh, uh, pursues it with uh, alcohol and things that go along with that. And he says, I'm still not happy. He pursues it with wealth. He accumulates incredible possessions. He builds beautiful gardens and massive buildings and has incredible accomplishments. And he looks in his heart and he says, I'm not happy. He pursues it uh, in hedonistic ways with uh, sexuality. He had a harem of a thousand women. He pursues it in beautiful things, art and music. He, he hires singers and dancers and fills his palace with beautiful, beautiful things. And at the end of all of it, he looks in his heart and he says, none of these things 
are providing what I hoped that they would. They all feel, and here's his language, they all feel empty. In fact, the word, the word he uses over and over, meaningless. He says, life feels meaningless. It feels futile. It's like chasing the wind. It all feels absurd when you really look at it from the big picture. Now, we've walked this journey with Solomon for five chapters, and today we are in the sixth chapter, and we're doing Ecclesiastes 6, not because it's Mother's Day, but because it's the next section in the text that we're studying through, and that's the way we roll here at Bethel Church. So we're in God's Word now, and chapter 6 is all about disillusionment, okay, disillusionment. What is disillusionment? It's when you expect something to be one way, and it ends up being another. Now, a positive other we would call a pleasant surprise, Okay, we like those, don't we? When things are better than we thought they would be. Negatively different is disillusionment. I thought this would be this way, and it's not that way. I thought this would make me feel this way, but now I don't feel that way. And I'm disillusioned in that thing and my whole pursuit of it. And life, frankly, is filled with disillusionment, isn't it? We think it's going to be one way. You watch the Disney movies, you grow up, you're young, you're like, I can't wait to ride off into the sunset, living happily ever after. And then you get older, and yes, there's some nice things, but then there's the other things, and you're always waiting for that happily ever after. It never comes, does it? Sorry, young people, to burst your bubble, but it doesn't come. So life is filled with disillusionment. It's not often what we hoped for. So don't lose hope here because the title of the message is Hope for the Disillusioned Life, but we want to get there, we want to get to hope in the path that Solomon takes us. So we have a whole chapter ahead of us. I'm not going to read every verse in the chapter. We begin in verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. First category of disillusionment he talks about is success, okay? Success. The chapter break here is a little unfortunate because in chapter five, he talks about the vanity of wealth and, uh, and possessions and he talks about the, the futility of that and how it doesn't, in the end, make you happy. But the chapter ends, chapter 5, ends on a high note where he says, actually, what is really a gift from God is not simply the things that he gives, but the power to enjoy the things that he gives. And he actually encourages us to enjoy our futile life, these few days that we live under the sun. Enjoy the good gifts that God gives to us. Uh, and then we have this chapter break, which is unfortunate because he flows right out of this into the person who gets all the things that they have wanted, and yet life is still disappointing. If I may draw a Mother's Day point, children are a gift, aren't they? Many women are like, oh, if only I had a child, and, and many dads too, like I had all those years wanting to have a child, and it is great to have a child. We celebrate children today, but is every day a panacea? <laughs> no, it's not. 
In fact, uh, this week, Jennifer and I were talking with my niece who had a birthday. She's in high school. And we said, hey, how's it going? She goes, oh, I took home the practice baby yesterday. We're like, oh, really? What was that like? Well, you know, it would cry, and then you had to, like, comfort it, and it would, uh, you know, pee, and you had to change the diaper, et cetera, et cetera. And she goes, she was kind of, like, insinuating that I've sort of kind of got what it's like to have a baby. And Jennifer and I were, like, rolling our eyes, like, you have no idea. (laughs) One day is not the same. What it's really, really like. It's one thing to have a child... It's another thing to enjoy that child as a gift from God. But that's not what chapter 6 is talking about here. It's talking about the opposite experience. He says there's a terrible evil that is all too common in the world around us. It is, he says, and by the way, notice the phrase, under the sun. Okay, that's code in Ecclesiastes that he has left what he was talking about at the end of chapter 5 in terms of enjoying it as a gift from God. Under the sun is just this world, closed universe, back to as if there is no God, okay? We're under the sun, we're not under God. There is a grievous evil for those that are living as if there is no God, and what is the evil? He says, wealth, possessions, and honor. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Wealth, possessions, and honor. What's wrong with those things? Isn't this the American dream? Notice the rest of the phrase. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. Okay, so he's describing here now somebody who their whole life's goal is X, Y, Z. Okay, whatever that would be. X, Y, Z. I want to have X, Y, Z in my life. I want to accumulate X, Y, Z in my life. And the whole time he's thinking or she's thinking to herself, "If, if I had X, Y, Z, then I would be happy then life would have meaning. And then by either determination or grit or talent or maybe just good fortune, this person gets X, Y, Z. They get maybe wealth, possessions, honor, whatever it might be. Now they have it. And yet Solomon knew from personal experience that the getting of the X, Y, Z itself did not produce that kind of happiness and satisfaction. So that person who their whole life's goal is for this thing, now they have that thing and they look in their heart and they're like, it's not doing for me what I thought it'd do. Like I still feel discontented inside. I still feel somewhat unhappy inside. And yet I have X, Y, Z. This is different than the, the person who all their whole life wanted X, Y, Z and they never got it. Because they go to their grave and they're unhappy and they think to themselves, well, I'm unhappy because I never got the X, Y, Z, now I die. The person who has the X, Y, Z and is still unhappy now begins to think, if happiness doesn't come in the X, Y, Z, then where does it come from? Is it even available in this world? Because I have the thing that I thought would be the thing that would make me happy. And Solomon here says that's a greater pain to get what you think you want and for it turn out to not provide it, to be disillusioned. And this is the the testimony, by the way, of so many people materialistically who get their X, Y, Z, whatever their net worth number is, whatever the possession, the car, the house, whatever it is, they're thinking to themselves, 
if only I can get it, then I'll be happy. Listen to, uh, and I read a few of these quotes a few weeks ago, listen to some famous rich Americans describe their experience of having this incredible wealth. John D. Rockefeller, possibly the richest man, I've seen estimates, the richest man who has ever lived, pharaohs included, he says this, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Really? Here's Vanderbilt, okay? The care of $200 million, and by the way, this is like 100 years ago, 150 years ago maybe, so whatever, $200 million back then, billions and billions, richer than anybody probably alive right now, Vanderbilt, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Astor, I am the most miserable man on earth. Now these are the guys that are the iconic industrialist, rich, multi-billionaire type guys, and they are saying, I derive no happiness from my wealth. Or worse, now Solomon says, not only do you get your XYZ and you don't have happiness, now you have a different experience, which he describes in verse 2. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. The wealth of the billionaire... Not only does it not make him happy, but now he sees other people trying to enjoy what he himself has accumulated. So now you have business associates who are trying to suck you dry. And you've got children who are arguing about the money that they're going to get when you die. How's that for a pleasant experience, right? Yeah, we love you, Dad, but what do I get? You have people that are trying to steal it from you, corrupt advisors, etc. And this is the plight of the secular man and all of his secular pursuits. He races, he runs, he tries, all of his life is for that XYZ, and they actually don't get to enjoy it, and they know eventually they have to do what with it? Give it away. They are going to die, and somebody else is going to come along, and all of that hard work and all of that labor is going to be enjoyed by a stranger, a child, a grandchild, a business associate, whatever it might be. And to lose what you have is like a death when all your hope is in what you have. Pastor Tim Keller, pastors in Manhattan, okay, Wall Street and all of that, He writes about what happened in 2008. Remember 2008? Not a great financial year, right? The stock market tanks and the economy tanked and all kinds of money was lost. Here's what happened to some of the the key players in all of that. I'm quoting Keller. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in Madoff's Ponzi scheme slid his wrist and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his $700 a night suite in Knightsbridge, London. 
When all your hope is in that X, Y, Z, and then you lose it, now there is no purpose in life. And you see that lived out in these men and so many others. And now Solomon doubles down on this, okay? Look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. Look at verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Three conditions for happiness in the ancient world. They were wealth, long life, and many children. And Solomon picks up those kind of idols of the ancient world, and he uses hyperbole here, and he says, if I had even a hundred children, and most of us would not see that as a real positive thing probably, a hundred children, but in the ancient world, that was a sign of incredible success and power. If I should live 2,000 years, if all that is yours and your soul is not satisfied, he says, what's the point? What's the point? Now, if you're reading this and you're thinking, man, the Bible is anti-money or anti-possessions, you're not hearing what Ecclesiastes is talking about. Solomon is pointing out the human dilemma without God. Without God. The man or woman who, who's wired to live with some sense of purpose, we all are. We all crave a kind of happiness, and we know that it doesn't come inside of us. We're unhappy inside. Maybe there's something out here that will make me happy. We're wired to look for that happiness. And after the fall and after sin, now all of our pursuits are within this world, right? More of the world, more of this, more of that. Maybe I'll be happy. In a materialistic culture like ours, it is in what you can accumulate, your net worth, your status symbols. And Solomon's like, hey, do all of that, pursue all of that, but guess what? Doesn't everybody go to the same place? And what is he referring to here? Death. Calumet Cemetery, right up the road here. I don't know if you've been there or not. I've done many funerals there. It might be the biggest funeral or biggest cemetery in Northwest Indiana, probably. I'm not sure. Maybe there's a bigger one, but um, I have a friend that works there, by the way, and uh, he's told me he sells plots there, and he's told me that they have varying prices on the plots there, depending on like it's extra for the lake view. <laughs> that is the honest truth. Or if you're near a tree or something like that. Rate goes up. Why would you care? From six feet under, you cannot see the lake, I guarantee you. Right? But if you go to Calumet Cemetery and you just drive around, it's a very lovely cemetery as cemeteries go. What do you see? You see some mausoleums and you kind of go, oh, that might have been a sort of well-to-do person. And you see normal headstones, gravestones, some in the ground. But you have a giant metaphor of what Solomon is saying here, that you, it doesn't matter. The values of the materialist are gone in a second when he or she dies. 
You can be incredibly wealthy or not, doesn't matter in the end. We're all in the same place. We all go to the same place. And death voids in one second all the apparent purposes behind the materialistic living. So I can guarantee you this. You live for materialist things, you are going to live the disillusioned life. Secondly, he talks about unfulfilled desires. Look at verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. I'll illustrate what he's talking about here with a story from Greek, uh, Greek mythology. If you know about the Greek gods, okay, the Greek and Roman gods, they had these pantheon of gods, and there's all these stories about them. And by sharing this, I'm not saying I believe any of this, but <coughs> it helps by way of illustration. The story of a guy named Tantalus, okay? Tantalus was an associate of the gods, of Zeus and Apollos and all the rest. He was kind of a hanger-on. He sort of, you know, he'd be at the parties and all that. He wasn't a god himself, but he hung around with the gods. Well, he did something very, very terrible that I won't get into, and the gods found out about it, and they banished him to the underworld, and they banished him to a punishment, and his punishment was that he would forever stand in water, like in a river, clear, fresh water, right up to here. And above him, there was a fruit tree whose branches came down and is filled with fruit. Now, here's the punishment. Every time he reached for the fruit, it would withdraw just out of his reach. So he'd be hungry, and he'd try to get it, and he couldn't quite get it. And every time he dipped down in order to drink a little bit of water, it would recede just out of his reach. So he'd be thirsty, and it'd be all around him, but he couldn't drink it. Okay? Tantalus. Maybe you hear in that name the English word what? Tantalize. That's where we get it from, actually, is from tantalus. To be tantalized is to have something that you very much want. It's just right there, but it's just out of reach. You just can't quite get it as much as you want it. It is an unfulfilled desire. And Solomon says here, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. We have these longings, we have these desires, but there's, there's with them this insatiableness that keeps us from ever having it completely, okay? So he says here, the, like, like for us, we're hungry, and our hunger drives us to work in order to, you know, grow the crop or to make money to buy the food. We eat the food, but the process of working does what? It makes us hungry, which means then we got to eat more food, which means then we got to work a little bit more, which makes me more hungry, and then I need to have more food. And we have this vicious circle, don't we? We can't get out of it. Here's my paraphrase uh, of this verse. A person leases an expensive car so they can drive to work to earn a paycheck to lease the car. You ever feel that way? 
Like everything I'm doing, it's just I'm getting nowhere. We're like the hamster on the wheel, right? Got to work harder, got to work harder. And now they have him. You've seen the little drink thing that comes down. And, and he can do this. And he can drink at the same time while he's running on the hamster wheel. Just all the time going, 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 but never feeling like you're getting anywhere and never actually satisfying the thing that's motivating the running in the first place. You're in this, by the way. What's tomorrow? Monday. <laughs> Back at it again. For what? To live for Saturday. And then you get to Saturday, but Monday is always coming. Moms, you ever feel this way? At night, putting away the toys for the kids of the kids? Okay, I gotta I want to clean house. I'm gonna put the toys away. But as you're putting the toys away, you think to yourself, what is the point of putting these toys away? <laughs> because three seconds after they're awake in the morning, they're all going back to where I just took them out from. Must have house clean, must put toys away. Kids pull toys out, house not clean, must put toys away, clean it up. See, I'm trying to work in Mother's Day here. Ecclesiastes 6, are you with me? Okay, I'm trying, I hope you appreciate it. Why do I keep doing all of this? What is the point? Unfulfilled desires. The third thing he talks about here is disillusionment with all of life's uncertainties. Look at verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more the words, the more the vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the day, few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The commentaries call this man's impasse. When, while life may feel absurd, and it certainly does, its essential character and the way that the world is, we can't do anything about it. We can talk, he says that, with many words. We can, we can chatter away, it, ought, it shouldn't be this way, and it should be different than that, or right now, all the political talk, have you noticed? Right, this politician's like, this is the way the world ought to be. And this politician, no, no, this is the way that the world ought to be. And Facebook's filled with everybody's opinion about them and what they're saying, and la, 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 la. But in the end, what does all of our talk and all of our chatter actually change? It doesn't change the essential reality that we live and we die. Nothing can change that. And then who knows what happens when we die, he says. He looks to the future, verse 12. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? There are so many uncertainties about my own life and so many uncertainties about the world that we live in. What can I know about tomorrow with any confidence? Or maybe parents, you like me, I look at my daughters and I... I just think, what are they going to see in their life? Like, what is this country going to be like in the course of their life? What, 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 are, what are they going to experience personally in terms of success and joy, but also 
pain and sorrow. And I'm the dad, and I want to protect them from all of that. But what can I actually protect them from long term? Nothing. I can't even control my own future, much less their future. That's disillusioning about life in this nasty world that we live in. I don't like uncertainty. I don't. Material success in life, disillusionment. Okay? Unfulfilled desires in life, disillusionment. Uncertainties in life, disillusioning. Now you might be here saying, I thought this was a message entitled Hope for the Disillusioned Life. And I haven't heard one ray of hope in this entire message. Well, this is a message about hope for the disillusioned life, but we have to get there the way that Solomon takes us there and really the way that Scripture takes us there. And the way that God does this is essentially the story of redemption, which I would like to illustrate this way. How many of you have ever done a corn maze? Ah, okay. Now, we might have some city slicker grandparents visiting here today. You never even, not only have you not done a corn maze, you've never even heard of a corn maze, corn maze and it confirms what you've heard about these hick Hoosier types. <laughs> You're here visiting, but you can't wait to get back to all of your city amenities. Well, you just do that, okay? Because we Hoosiers, we like corn, okay? We like corn. We're, we're pro-corn. And somebody along the way came up with the great idea of a corn maze. And a corn maze is every fall, there are farmers who, this is a way for them to make money because they can charge people to do these things, they will, before they harvest, they will create in the big cornfield a maze, and they do this by just basically cutting down paths in the corn. And I have some pictures here that show you kind of what it looks like. Doesn't that look like fun? I mean, look at that. Who could not have fun running around in there? So here's the, here's the idea of the corn maze. The corn maze is that you go into the corn maze, and the goal is either to get to the center of the corn maze or to get through the corn maze and to come out on the other side. Okay, now that sounds simple, doesn't it, right? It's corn, how hard can it be? But we're talking about Indiana corn here, okay? This isn't like Illinois corn, which is like this tall. We're talking about Indiana corn. <laughs> I'm just kind of working it here with me, all right, okay? Know your audience. I'll give this message next week, and it'll be, this is Illinois corn we're talking about, or Iowa corn, which might be the tallest. But anyway, I digress. So that's where I'm from. Anyway, uh, so you go into the corn, and once you get in the corn, you can't see, okay? It's tall, and you have to find your way, and it sounds simple, but especially the tough corn mazes, you go into them, and they've kind of planned this where you think that you're actually making progress. You're like, it feels like I'm walking the right, I see a, what do I see in the distance there? I, I, I think I see a telephone tower in the distance. We're going the right way, only to inevitably come to a dead end. And you stand there and you're like, and it's just there, all of a sudden there's just corn and you're like, well, this isn't going anywhere. 
and now you got to turn back. And the other thing about corn is it all looks the same. So once you, like, where did we come from? Did we go left or right there? I can't remember. And now you're completely corn-fused. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, that was corny. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, so the corn maze. So the idea here, though, is that by the process of elimination, by trying this path and it didn't go anywhere, and then trying this path and it didn't go anywhere, and then trying this path and, and it, maybe it's going somewhere, you're able to eliminate the ones that don't take you where you want to go in order to find the one that actually does, the corn maze. What if somebody purposely designed the maze in a way that takes you down wrong paths because they know it's the only way that you will find the right path? What if the, the, the discouragement of getting to the dead end is actually a gift, a grace gift for you to realize this is not a path that will get me where I want to go? And to turn you around to get you on the path that is where you want to go. Imagine being in a maze and thinking there is no way out of this. That would be a devilish maze, wouldn't it? Talk about being disillusioned. There's no way out of the maze. So let's just ask the question again. Why did God give us these deep spiritual longings, right? We, we want to go somewhere. We know where we are is not where we want to be. We, we want to go to somewhere. We want to find contentment. We want to find a happiness that we don't see within ourselves. Why, why are we all that way? Why does the Eskimo worship a god and, and uh, some dude on the Nile River 2,000 years ago is worshiping some god and you go everywhere in the world and human beings and even in this place right now, we are all made for some kind of worship. And so we pursue meaning and purpose in all kinds of different ways, don't we? And so many of them, in fact, all of them, end up a dead end. Wealth, materialism. I'm still not happy. Well, I gotta turn around, I gotta, I gotta find a different path here. Marriage, children. Not quite getting me there i got to turn around and find a different path. Fame, success in the world's eyes. Not quite getting me there. I've got to try a different path. And my friends, God is the master life maze designer. And he purposely deadens us. He deadens us. And maybe you're there right now. You're disillusioned with your life somehow. You have a pain in your life right now, a devastating kind of experience that you're at. And you look to God and you say, the pain that I'm experiencing right now is, you, you don't love me. You hate me. And we misinterpret what God is doing with the sorrows of life. Like a guy I met right before first service today. I... I haven't seen him in a long time, and I, and I actually wasn't sure. I was like, I recognize you. Who are you? And he says, yeah, you might remember me. 
and I did then because I helped him. 16 years ago, he went through a divorce. Devastating experience in his life. And what he told me right before the service, he said, God used that divorce to save me. Is that not Ecclesiastes 6 and the story of redemption? Did he want to go through that divorce? Did he want to have the pain of that? Does he continue to want to have all the awkwardness of being a parent on Mother's Day as a result of that divorce 16 years ago? No. But now he looks at it from the big picture and he sees that his life was not on the path to salvation. It was not on the path to satisfaction. And God used that to turn him around and to begin looking, well, then where is it found in this life? And that might be you right now. Here you are. I'm talking like this. You're like looking around going, nobody knows about the thing going on in my life, I hope. But in your heart, you know. You know. Could it be the love of God working in your life through that pain for you to get your eyes off of the X, Y, Z that you thought would somehow bring you to that place of happiness and satisfaction. And for you then to look and to find it actually in the one place. There is only one X, Y, Z, and his name is Jesus. Okay? Here's what he said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets out of the maze but by me. Or to say it this way, actually biblically, no man comes to the Father but by me. And friends, life is filled with all of these paths and we run down them and we hope and we dream and we think it's you know, happily ever after. There is only one happily ever after and it is eternal life with God through Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins where we receive that saving benefit of his work by faith. And God has put us into this like prison Maze, whatever you want to say, where nothing else works because he loves us. Listen to, listen to Galatians 3.22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Okay, there it is. Everything under sin. That doesn't sound fun. Who wants to be in a prison? Well, wait a second. Look what God is doing. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Our sin and God's condemnation of our sin means all the religions of the world where I'm trying to earn my way and all of the isms of this world that somehow promises happiness. In this world, nothing does it but God and faith in Jesus. As Luther said, the wicked begin their hell in this life. And disillusionment and disappointment and sorrows and all of that is part of what we experience when we are living life on a path that we were never made by God to find happiness in. Or to say it this way, that God uses disillusionment to lead us to the promise of God to save all who believe in Jesus. And praise God, we are not in a maze where there is no way out. We are in a maze where there is one way out, and that is faith in Christ. And so I wonder today, friend, if I could just ask you personally, what about you, okay? What about you? What about your life? Tomorrow's Monday, 
Okay, back at it. Back on the wheel. Back in the vicious circle. What are you doing? What's the point? Are you going to be buried at Calumet Cemetery? Along with all the other rich, poor, or whoever they are? What's the point of all of this? There is one point, and it is that God loves humanity, that God loves you, and all of that is part of his love to lead you to believe in Christ. Here's Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's the promise of God for eternal life for all who believe. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, disillusioned, and I will give you rest. Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You will be saved. Led out of this maze for what we really want. Joy and life eternal knowing God our creator, hope for the next life, and hope for this disillusioned life that we are living. And that is hope for Mother's Day and hope for every day. And I pray that everyone here will give that very serious consideration. What about you? What about you?